So in a time like this, we're tempted to focus inward and on us and our problems and our circumstances. We're reminded and we join with churches all across the world. They're praying for believers, followers of Jesus that are persecuted for their faith. And we identify with them because we know that we're called to a life that is not safe. And so we'll join with them. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters that find themselves in circumstances that are beyond our comprehension. Father, your, your son Jesus promised that persecution would be part of our walk with you. And there are some of us here and listening online that have experienced a degree or a level of that uh, at work or context of our families. But Lord, we in humility uh, recognize that our lives are not threatened and the fear that we might have uh, pales in comparison to many millions of followers of you that deal with this on a daily, hourly, moment-to-moment basis. And so, Lord, we pray for your protection. We pray for um, the tide to turn for them. We pray that you would continue to purify your church uh, in ways that allow those who love you and follow you to remain safe. And we pray that they would know beyond any doubts that your love for them remains full and deep and wide in spite of their circumstances. So Lord, meet their needs. Meet them in their fear as they fully surrender to you. Lord, we here in this room and online watching, we confess that we are inspired, uh, maybe a bit in awe of their example, and we pray that you would give us the courage that we need uh, to live out our faith in tangible ways. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. We say together, amen. So our prayer team's been praying all day for the uh, persecuted church, and if you would like more information, we have some information in the lobby. If you want to kind of engage with that, uh, with your knowledge intellectually, you can pray for them as you go through this week and maybe even periodically over time. It's a big deal, and we're glad to do it and participate in it. A couple things before we jump into the message. 20th anniversary stuff that we did last week. We were really glad that a lot of you could be here and many of you online watched as well and that we could you know, have some of our history explained to you if you missed it or you want to be reminded of some of that. Some of it's been shared on Facebook. If you get our uh, e-news and the various emails we send out through the week, then you might have received some of that. If you don't, drop us an email and we'll send it out to you. Just Drop a note to Debbie. You can send it, you can get it to her info at castleoaks.org. And we would love to then start sending you stuff, but you can get the, the videos and all that kind of thing. The memories are really incredible that are being shared. And uh, maybe we'll share some more of those in the, in the coming weeks. Um, but we're really thankful for your participation in that. And we got to celebrate even in this time in that way. Um, 
So we'll, we'll do uh, the Lord's Prayer at the end of the service today after we take communion together. And so if you're at home, you're watching, um, in just a little bit, we'll uh, participate in communion. We'll do it the way we've been doing it lately, which I think has been very good, especially while we're a dispersed church. We'll take it together. Uh, all of the elements, we'll consume the bread together, and then we'll consume the cup together, and we'll kind of talk through it and pray through it together. I think it gives us a sense of unity that we might not normally have during this time when we're all in different places. And so if you don't have your stuff ready at home, then take some time. I mean, you can skip the whole sermon if you want to go to the store um, and, and get, get the stuff, okay? And so if you, if you miss the discomfort of two weeks ago, then we're going to bring it back a little bit. We talked about us and them, and, and we, we in fact, let me, let me just catch you up if you missed it. If not, let me invite you back into the pain of thinking about this. Um, we know that we often put ourselves and other people into categories, and to help us get our heads around it, we talked about this idea of us and them. And the us and them could be anything, right? It could be, you know, Broncos fans and Chiefs fans. It could be Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I don't know why that would come to mind. It could be, could be anything, right? It could be something that you are and something that somebody else is. And there's a dividing line between these two groups. And we asked you two weeks ago to identify and to name the people in your life that are them. And it must have hit a bit of a chord, because I heard from a few folks uh, that were watching online, and some of you that were here, a few of you as well, that said, I, 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 had, I named my them, and just naming them was just, I don't know, just kind of brought some shame, a little embarrassment. You know, I can't believe that they were my them. But it was so helpful and painful, and I wish I didn't have to do it, but I'm glad you made me do it. I don't think I'll come back to church anymore and all that. So if you haven't named your them, it would be great if you did. And when I say name them, you can name them the polite name that you would use in normal conversation, or you can give them the actual name you use when you're talking with somebody you're really comfortable with. Um, it will be helpful. The more honest you are about your them, then the more of a chance you give God to kind of do his thing. It's interesting how it works that way. Honesty and vulnerability with God. Ah, then he says, now we can get down to work. I already knew it. Thanks for admitting it. Now let's go. So you're us and them. That'd be great if you did. And the us and them happens, the reason why we get painted in these corners or why we put other people in these corners or these categories is because we see something a certain way and they see something else, that, that they see that same thing a different way than we see it. Uh, sometimes it's a, a taste, sometimes it's a preference, sometimes it's an ethical thing, often it is a moral thing, many times it's a religious issue, a political issue. Maybe it's a deeply held value that you have that you were brought up with, and now you have a them in your mind, the people that exhibit this other characteristic that you think is just, uh, if we're honest, it's just awful, reprehensible. You can't believe that somebody would think that or live that way. And if you can kind of identify those, then you know that the trip from, you know, I believe that I'm right about this, to we begin to suppose that we are better is a very short trip and you can make it pretty quickly. 
you know, I, I think I'm right about this. I mean, in fact, let's be honest. If I thought it was wrong, I, I would change my opinion. I've had my opinion for a very long time. And now I also believe that what I think is, is better. Not just right, it's better. And it's a short trip. And then we said uh, two weeks ago that when we make this little trip, we do it without even knowing it. And then we begin to latch on to some things that we're even more afraid to admit. That, that this idea that well, we're right, and, uh, and to be honest, probably better. We begin to ascribe to our us and them worth and identity that puts us in a very good spot and somebody else in a, oh, there before the grace of God go me spot. Or I can't believe you think like that. Or, you know, boy, I wish you'd get enlightened. It happened to me. Maybe one day can happen to you. And so this is a tough spot for us to be in. And it's really, really common that we would feel this way and think this. And it's, it's, it's not only that. It's, it's not that it's common for us for many of us that were here a couple weeks ago, when we see these two ideas, we begin to think, oh, I guess I do feel that way, and maybe I feel better. For some of us, that was enough for us to just stop and go, that's awful. I, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to I'm not better than somebody else. For many of us, it might be enough for us to just take a step back and say, oh, I need to kind of reevaluate how I treat other people. I need to be thoughtful about how I love people. Then we go back into our normal world and we read the headlines and we watch the news and we interact with our family because some of our right and better has to do with the people that live in our very own homes. And we slip back into the same habits. And the reason is because these issues that we're right about and that we eventually feel we're better than other people, these issues are deeply held issues, aren't they? I mean, they are things, ideas, positions that we're very passionate about and very emotional about. In fact, how many of you have found yourself in very emotional discussions over the last, I don't know, six or seven months about any number of topics with somebody who, listen close, agrees with you but you were ramped up and emotional as if you were in an argument with somebody who disagreed with you. And you found yourself believing the right and the better and eventually it becomes a very toxic thing for all of our hearts. It puts us in a place where we believe that we have favored status. With God, yeah, sure. With other people, with the smart ones in the room, absolutely. And when that occurs, we have to begin to ask the question, what's the solution to this? Are we stuck? Is it going to remain this way? Is it just how it is until Jesus comes back and gives us all a little holy slap into place? And let's be honest, Christians, historically, we won't say anything about you. We'll just say Christians in general. They're the worst at this, aren't they? Aren't they? I mean, you know it's true. Christians do this in the most passionate, extreme ways. In fact, Christians are known for this. In fact, you know somebody that won't go to church because Christians are like that. 
You know somebody that has given up their belief in God because Christians are like that. And it's not just because their grandpa or their aunt or their uncle or their neighbor or their coworker was like that. It's because they look at history and see it. So all you have to do are say things like, oh, I don't know, have you ever studied the Crusades? Have you ever paid attention to the Great Schism or the, the history of Christianity and watched how it evolved? You remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? That they would all be, what? One. And now you look at the world and you think, oh my goodness, what has happened? It's like Christians have got expert degrees in becoming right and better than other people, which means that all of us are in danger of that very same thing. If you're curious about all of it, then you could hop on Amazon and you could pick up a book that's the complete guide to Christian denominations. This is incredible. It's really, really good. It's, it's uh, 450 pages long. And this book, Dr. Ron Rose, he, he gives just a this is really North American denomination. It's pretty funny that he writes this book and just gives it this title. It really has everything to do with stuff in our country. He doesn't even get into the worldwide picture of Christendom. And so I've asked a, a few people, and you can make your own guess. I don't want it out loud. I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. But if you were to wonder how many denominations, these are identifiable, unique denominations that are present in the Christian world, North American only, really, that have their own organization, their own polity, their own identifiable group. I wonder how many you would guess that are named just in this book alone. 146. Isn't that incredible? I mean, when you study the history of Christianity, you see that the church started as one, and then it branched, and then it branched, and then it forked, and then it branched again, then forked three more times. I mean, in this book, there are at least 12 that are just Baptist alone. It's absolutely incredible. And then I thought, you know who's going to read this book are a bunch of Christians, right? Nobody else is going to read this book. It's a bunch of Christians. So then I thought, you know, it would be interesting if I looked to see what kind of reviews he had on Amazon. And believe it or not, Dr. Rhodes has at least about a dozen one-star reviews for his book on Christian denominations. The best one that I found was this one. The quote from it was this. To me, it's not a complete guide because it does not list all of them. Now, how does somebody type that and not just get embarrassed and delete it? And that's amazing to ponder. Organized networks of churches, denominations. And this doesn't count Billy Bob who just goes off and starts his own church, right? How many of those are there who says, well, I don't want to be a part of a denomination? Oh my goodness. We are experts at being right and at being better. It didn't start with us. It didn't start with us at all. In fact, it started long before you and I came on the scene We've been in this passage of Ephesians 2, 11, 12 verses that articulate the whole history that Paul packs a ridiculous amount of theology into. And look, if you're gonna survive the next several weeks, maybe the next several months, for most of us, we believe where the culture is the rest of your days, it's gonna be because you get a handle on what Paul says at the last half of Ephesians chapter two. 
It's going to be because you build your theology, meaning how God works with the world and how you interact with God. That's all theology is. You build it around an understanding of what is really going on. Because if you don't, you will lose hope. If you don't, anxiety will take up residence. If you don't, you'll be fighting all the wrong battles over and over and over again. And they've been fought ever since the beginning of God's story. Here's where we were. Here's what Paul says, Ephesians chapter two. He says, look, don't forget that you, what? What are you all? All right, you're Gentiles. In Paul's world, there's two kinds of people. There's the Jewish people, and then there's the Gentiles. There's not another type in Paul's world. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were wrong. You were worse from the Jewish point of view. You were called, in fact, let's just say it just so we feel the correct amount of shame, all right? You were called uncircumcised heathens. When Paul begins to paint the picture of the greatest schism, the greatest division, the greatest piece of disunity throughout history, he does it incredibly well, and he does it in just a verse or two. You were called uncircumcised heathens, but Paul doesn't let anybody off the hook. Paul then says, you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were, what? Proud of their circumcision. And then he says this. Until this moment, the Jews were feeling a little puffed up, maybe a little proud. Maybe they feel like they were the ones. They were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their, what? This is the classic us and them. This is the beginning of the us and them. No one is off the hook. Two groups of people in Paul's mind that exist in the world, Gentiles and the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And throughout history, this us and them created an unbelievable amount of bloodshed. You've read the Old Testament, right? How the Israelites took back their land. Who did they take it back from? The Gentiles. How did they take it back? Well, first by asking... And of course, they lived in a very agrarian society that believed that our place in this world establishes our worth and our identity in this world. So you know, we're not giving it up without a, what? Without a fight. And this is us and them over and over and over again. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, what to do about this problem. And every, every category of them that you could think of. Every one is addressed in Ephesians 2. It's not just about the Jews and the Gentiles. It's about every group of people that you feel separate from because of your ideology, because of your values, because of your theology, because of the church you grew up in, because of the side of the tracks that you grew up on. Every us and them is addressed. And when it is, Paul tells us how Jesus solves the us and them problem. Here's what he writes. Once you were, what? You were far away from God, but now you have been, and don't miss the verb here, you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Look, what's true in owning land or realty in that world What's true in that world is also true in your spiritual life. The most important thing is what? Location, 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 right? 
And Paul says, you were far away from God. And the reason you were far away is because you chose and you lived that way. He's saying the Jews were far away from God too. They were far away from God for different reasons. But Gentiles, you were far away from God. You didn't know him. You didn't understand the covenants. You didn't understand the promises. You were far away from him. But then something happened. And you have been, say it with me, brought near to him. This is the promise. And he goes on to say this. For he himself is our, what? He is our peace. Who has made the two groups one, us and them, no longer us and them. If you erase the wall between us and them, what do you have? Us. That's all. Just us. Me and you. We're together. So he has become our peace. The two groups became one. And the two groups, he himself, because he is our peace, he has destroyed the barrier, and then say it out loud, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, can you imagine a phrase that is more appropriate to our culture than that one? The dividing wall of hostility. Can you imagine anything that describes what's happening now or what will happen this week? There are already businesses throughout Denver, many other cities, already boarding up their windows because of the dividing wall of hostility. And where do Christians stand in the middle? How do they bridge the gap? Or do they find themselves on either side of the division, deepening the divide? In fact, laying another brick on top of the dividing wall of hostility. Now, before you go any further, I want you to center in on this first phrase. For he himself is our peace. Say it with me. For he himself is our peace. Say it one more time. For he himself is our peace. Usually whenever peace is brokered, Whenever peace is found, you can think of anything you want. You can think of a, a, a contentious division between laborers and the union. You can think of Jimmy Carter and the Middle East Summit. You can think of any place. You can think of a, a divorce and a mediation, an arbitration, a courtroom. Think of any division that you would like to think of. And peace is always focused in on finding the truth in the middle, an agreement I have my side, you have your side. And now we have to figure out what is really true. Or I have to make concessions and you have to make concessions. And we find ourselves then finally just agreeing on something and none of us are happy, but we've signed on the dotted line. We have brokered a peace. I've given up this, you've given up that. It's not based on everything that I want. We have found sort of a win-win or a win-lose or a lose-win, but it's always a foundation of agreement between us, right? Read it again. For he himself is our peace. A treaty is always based on acceptable terms. For the followers of Jesus, though, what Jesus says, what the Holy Spirit says through Paul what Jesus did on the cross is very different than that. It has nothing to do with terms. It has nothing to do with agreement. 
It has nothing to do with you and me seeing things the same way at all. I mean, honestly, do you believe that there is a time in the future when we will all agree on everything? I mean, if you believe that, then you haven't read scripture and you don't understand how history is going to be unfolded in front of us. No, Paul says it is Jesus who is our peace. What Paul says is that peace isn't based on agreement. Peace isn't based on you and I seeing things the same way or me deciding that, well, I I guess I can be around some of those people even though I disagree with them. I will tolerate them. That's not peace. Paul says our peace is not based on an idea. Our peace is based on a person. And the difference, well, if you don't grasp it, then you will forever find yourself believing us and them, always. Because there will always be somebody you disagree with. There will always be somebody that you're more right than. There's always somebody that you're better than. Our peace is based on a person. How did he do that? What does that even mean? Here's what he says. For Jesus, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Remember, for Paul, there's only two groups of people in the world, Gentiles and everybody else. All the Jewish people and everybody else. Two groups. He created in himself, this was his purpose, to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making what? So it's not based on agreement. It's not based on coming to the same page of theology. It's based on just Jesus, just him. Now, When Paul says, this was his purpose. His purpose was, and Paul lays it out in one sentence, what do you think the odds are that Jesus will get the job done that he started to do? What do you think they are? Do you think he's trying? Do you think he's hoping? Do you think he's revising his plan right now as he watched the United States of America? Do you think he's saying to his father, you know, it was a good try. We, a swing and a miss, right? Let's start over. Is that what he's saying? What do you think the odds are that Jesus will complete the work he has started? I think it's about, I don't know, 100%. Don't you? Yes. Yes, me too. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> Terry's the only one listening. That's right. A hundred percent. It doesn't look like it now, does it? No. But faith is believing in what we have not yet seen. When I was a little kid, my dad, he was an engineer by by trade, and he uh, fancied himself to be a a woodworker, you know, hobbyist, and he made all kinds of furniture in our house. He he was the the Rick Veith, okay, of the Vaughn household. 
And my dad had a workshop. We had a one-car garage in our little house that I don't ever remember seeing a car in, ever, because it had all his tools and all the stuff. In fact, when I got a little bit older, we built a two-car garage behind the house, and then still not one car in any of our garages. That just became the front workshop and the back workshop. And I loved to be in the workshop and watch dad work because dad would have tools that I didn't even know what they did. He would start to do a process, you know, a dovetail joint or put this tabletop together, edge glue these boards because he was making a coffee table, something. And I would have no idea what he was doing. And I would just watch in fascination as this thing that looked like a piece of nasty throwaway lumber would eventually become this, this beautiful work of art. But it took step after step after step, but it occurred right in front of my very eyes evenings after supper, walk down the garage and watch dad as he worked and asked questions. This is what God is up to. Dad would finish and it would look like something that belongs in somebody's home. Before that, it looked like something that belonged in the trash bin. Jesus is about the business of making in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is what he does. How does he do it? How does it happen? Well, you've just read two verses. One is is verse 15 here, the one right before it, of course, verse 14. The the truth of it bridges both. It's really kind of an unfortunate place for a verse number that we've put there. So let me bridge the two verses for you and paint a picture that Paul wants us to grasp, okay? And I've just created a little bit different so you don't miss it. Jesus has destroyed the barrier. It's what's in between us and them. He has destroyed the barrier. He also calls it in this verse the dividing wall of hostility. It's a great, great picture for you and me today. And he did it by, this is how he did it. This is how the dividing wall of hostility goes away. If you're wondering, how do I get along with somebody who thinks or believes or acts or, or has some sort of set of values that are completely different than mine? How does that happen? How am I, as a follower of Jesus, supposed to navigate my way in a world that is filled with us and thems? This is how. Jesus did it by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by, don't miss it, setting aside in his flesh what? The law with its commands and regulations. This is how he did it. So let me ask you, what were the Jewish people proud of based on this verse? Do you remember? Circumcision, that's right. Circumcision was a part of the Abraham covenant, was a part of the law. And they were what? Proud of it. It made them feel like they were right. It made them feel like they were better than other people. In fact, you could even say it this way. The law was the source of hostility. That's where it came from, the law. You know what the law is, right? You've been in church long enough to know the law. Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's all in the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. You know that we, sum up the law, we summarize the law by focusing on the Ten Commandments. 
but that there are over 600 commandments that the Jewish people live by. And some of them were dietary and some of them were relational. Some of them had to do with how you treat other people. Some of them had to do with how you treat other people's property. All of these things were a part of the law and the Jewish people were to live by the law. God gave the law and the law was good, but the law had a very unique purpose. But the Jewish people said, well, God gave us the law, so that makes us special, makes us important. We know what you don't know and that makes us right. And when we're right, eventually we begin to realize, you know, we're not just right, we're better than you, Gentiles. Gentiles was a broad name for anybody that wasn't Jewish. In fact, the Jews began to feel so much better than other people in the Old Testament. They had all kinds of names for them. It was all the people that they conquered in the various places geographically. One of those groups was called the Philistines. You've heard that word before, right? The Philistines. Have any of you ever been called a Philistine before? Probably. I mean, I know some of you. If you use a thesaurus and you look up the word Philistine, you'll see what it means. It's somebody who is boorish, uneducated, maybe illiterate. In fact, the name Philistine that was used to describe a group of people in the Old Testament is now used as a pejorative, derogatory term for anybody that doesn't know really what's best for other people or even themselves, you Philistine. This is the nature of the law and what it did. Does that mean the law wasn't good? Oh no, the law was very good. In fact, Paul describes this process that occurred and in all of his letters, he takes time to define how the law works and what it was for. In fact, he tells us exactly what the purpose of the law was in Galatians and Romans. You can read it for yourself and Google it and study it. The law had one purpose. In fact, I'll summarize what he writes about the law in one sentence for you. Paul said the purpose of the law was to act as a tutor to bring us to God. That's it. Isn't that simple? The purpose of the law was to act as a tutor to bring us to God. How does it do that? Well, I read the law and it says, do not covet. Well, I didn't even know what it meant to covet until God said, don't covet. Now I want everything I don't have. I guess I'm a coveter. This is what Paul writes. This is how he describes it. Oh man, I've broken the law. How do I get any better from that? Because every law I read, I think, oh, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. I've broken all of them. Well, most. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, the ones you haven't actually broken, you've broken in your heart. So what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? It is a tutor to lead me into the hands of God. That's it. The Jews said, oh, no, 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 no. The purpose of the law is to be a spiritual measuring stick to define your worthiness before God. That's what they said. And that's why there are multiple sects of Judaism. That's why the Sadducees and the Pharisees couldn't even get along or worship in the synagogue together. It's why Jesus was put on the cross ultimately because they believed that the law was a measuring stick that would define your worthiness before God. They misunderstood it completely. 
It's always been confusing to me when Christians want to hang the Ten Commandments in the halls of justice and public buildings. Never understood it. I thought, you, you know Jesus. Why would you want to be bound by the law? I mean, do you understand what Paul writes here? He says, Jesus destroyed the barrier and he did it by setting aside in his flesh the law. I mean, he fulfilled it completely. It means you are no longer bound by it. You can't even hold other people to it. Remember what we said two weeks ago? You and I have standards that we don't even keep ourselves that we hold other people to. That's the truth that cuts our hearts like a scalpel. So the dividing wall of hostility means that you and I are the same. In fact, this is the essence of the gospel. I'm a lawbreaker and you're a lawbreaker. Spiritually speaking, there's no difference between any of us. Even if you believe something different than me, even if you have a different set of politics than I have, even if you behave in a way that's different than me, the dividing wall of hostility comes down when you begin to understand that Jesus fulfilled in his flesh the law. And because he fulfilled it, he set it aside. And then Paul says this. And so together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God. All of the us and all of the them. By means of his, what? Say it with me. Death on the cross. This is the power of the gospel. And this is what Jesus does. So odds are, if you're like me, and you have a couple us's and them's, you got reasons, you got dividing, you could even describe your dividing wall of hostility. If you have groups like that, then it's because you also view scripture as a way to measure somebody else's spiritual worthiness. And when we do that, we create divisions that the gospel of Jesus eliminates every time. When we take communion together, we are confessing the truth. The truth is that the law has been fulfilled completely by the death of Jesus. And so if you're at home, if you have your elements ready, if you're here in this room, you can pick up your communion elements as well. Somehow we've forgotten that even in the disciples, there were us and them. You remember the us and them? And James and John, they said, look, when you establish your kingdom, can we be the ones that you're right and you're left? This made the other disciples mad. Even at the Last Supper, Jesus, who had chosen Judas, empowered Judas, and trusted Judas, washed the feet of Judas, and fed Judas these same elements. The rest of the disciples, of course, angry, jealous, mad about the division among them. And Jesus says, when he holds up the bread, he says, this is my body, and it's broken for each of you. So when we take the body, we're reminded that the metaphor in the New Testament for 
us, all of us, is the body of Christ. The same body that was broken on the cross. How did he himself become our peace? What does that mean to the body of Christ? It means anyone that Jesus loves, I can't not love. Anyone that Jesus has made, which is every person you've ever encountered, bears the image of God. And I treat them as the most holy person imaginable, even when they vote differently than I do. This is the body of Christ. So at that meal, Jesus passed it around and the disciples, they took some of it. And at home and here in this room, we remember the death of Jesus together and we receive the body of Jesus. Let's take the bread together. Lord, as we take this bread, we recognize that we are part of the same body that includes our neighbor, our family, our friends, our enemies, those we'd rather not walk with and those you've put in our path to remind us of our humanity. It's the body of Christ broken for us. And then Jesus took a cup cup of Passover and this cup he held up in front of his friends and he explained that this cup represents a new covenant this new covenant represents the age that we're still under right now before the kingdom is completely brought in its fullness completely fulfilled we live in this in-between time. It's, it's now and not yet. Jesus said the kingdom is here and, and yet he's relied on us to bring the kingdom in its presence fully by the way that we love and by the way we exhibit the character and the qualities of who God has made us to be and made us new. That he has removed the dividing wall of hostility between us and everyone else. And Jesus, with the cup, he said, this cup represents the new covenant. It's my blood and it's poured out for you. So the disciples, each other's presence, as Jesus handed this cup, they took and they drank. Let's partake of the cup. Lord, we were reminded as we take these elements that we are a part of one new humanity. We also recognize that the world around us is fractured, but we don't believe in just what we see. We believe in the unseen. And in the unseen world, we believe that Jesus is about the business of restoring the kingdom to one new humanity. And so we trust. Oh, Lord, our trust falters especially in this season when we wonder what will become of this, this culture, this world, this country, this globe, what will become of the difficulty and the pain and the 
the struggle that we're in. But Lord, we trust that you are active, that you are alive, that you bring new. We trust this. And we trust it because of the meal that we just participated in, knowing and believing that the pattern that you've invited us into involves a death and a burial and a resurrection and that new life comes from you and you alone. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to remove this dividing wall of hostility. Lord, forgive us when we have used your words to be a measuring stick of somebody else's worthiness. Lord, forgive us when we have misunderstood the very nature of the law, when your word is so painfully clear about the purpose established. So Lord, may we walk with you and may we love each other sincerely and thoughtfully. We believe that with every act of love, every sentiment, every prayer of love that we offer from our hearts to another person in our midst and even far from us, that your kingdom grows a little bit larger. So church, these are the gifts of God and the grace of God for the people of God. And they're given to you that you may not hoard them, that you may give them to others. So we've been using the Lord's Prayer to guide us this month. And so you'll see it on the screen. We'll pray it again today, all of us together. And as you pray and worship, let me remind you of a couple things. This piece in yellow is really the focus of our day. And so I don't know how many of you went hungry this week. I hope none of you did. But if you didn't, then you have some uh, gratitude in your hearts for the way God has blessed you and taken care of you. Connected to this idea is that we would offer forgiveness because we have been forgiven. And so it's really centered around this whole idea that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. One, no, one new humanity, why? Uh, well, the dividing wall of hostility has been removed, why? Well, because you've been forgiven, that's why. You experience the grace of God. Who are you to be right and better than someone else? Ah, the ground is level at God's feet. We're really uh, thrilled today as I was at welcoming people in outside to see my friends, uh, Danny, Durrani, and, and Balin. And uh, we've been praying for Caitlin and uh, Caitlin, Danny, and Sarah's daughter and Balin's sister. And so we'll continue to pray for them, uh, all of them, and for Caitlin's recovery. It's been a good week, good things, but it's a roller coaster, isn't it, Danny? Yeah, so we're with you and we surround you and you won't go through this alone. So let's start at the top. I'll pray and then we'll worship a bit as we prepare to leave. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And so, Lord, as we, in this place, 
prepare to enter into what will be, of course, a very tense, a very unpredictable week. We recognize, Lord, that the most important things that hang in the balance have already been solved. The most important issues have already been answered. And while we bring to this week a a level of anxiety that is absolutely understandable and heightened, we do so right now in your presence with open hands, trust you. So Lord, we believe that you are sovereign, powerful, and mighty, and in control. We also believe that you have placed the growth, the depth, and the width of your kingdom into the choices and decisions and volition of your followers, us, that we would love, that we would hold up our friends like Caitlin and the whole Durrani family. We believe that when we pray that you move and that you act and you also change our hearts, we ask for healing, complete and full healing. And we pray that you would provide everything the family needs through this crisis and difficulty. But more than anything, that Caitlin would feel your love and your compassion. That each of the family would feel the same. So this week, we will be faced with many crossroads. One turn will be toward trusting you and believing that you're at work and with us, and another would be one of hopeless anxiety. Lord, guard our hearts. May we look to you and you alone as the answer to every woe, to every need, to every hurt, and to every anxious thought. So, Lord, we surrender it to you, and we declare with one voice today that all of our hope is in you. For you, Lord, are our living hope. In the name of Jesus, we say this together. Amen.